0: You're listening to the Life Church Livonia Podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Life Church Livonia, it's me, it's Alex. And if you're watching online today, it is a normal service. And if you're in person, it's not. You're wondering. I came here to see Alex, hopefully you didn't. But I came here to see Alex, where is he? Here's the deal guys, listen, come here. I love you, I do, but this is my anniversary weekend and I couldn't get anyone else to preach. So this is our creative solution. As much as I love you, I love my wife, wait for it, a lot more, there we go, yeah, a lot more than you. (laughs) And that's good and right, so I hope you're not too offended by that. Well welcome today, if you're new here, (laughs) it's not normally like this. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church Livonia, and I'm away on an anniversary trip right now, and I can already tell I'm having a blast. Today, we're starting a new series in the book of Psalms called Psalms A Cry of the Soul. The book of Psalms is a symphony of the human experience, and we're going to be spending eight weeks in the book of Psalms this summer looking at eight major psalms throughout the book, famous psalms, psalms that go through different emotions, through doubt, through anger, through praise, through grief, through wonder, through creativity, as real people express their real souls to our real God in the midst of real life. And I'm really looking forward to uh, following the psalms and looking at the ups and downs of the different psalmists and looking how we might grow as worshipers, we might grow in our prayer life, we might grow in intimacy with God together as we read the book of Psalms this summer. Today we're beginning with Psalm 22. And one of the things I love about the Psalms in general is that they're music, they're songs, they're songs written by people. And I love to play music. I've been leading worship for over 20 years. And as a teenager, I began writing songs. Now, you see, I wasn't great at writing songs when I started. I'm not going to lie, I was pretty bad. And I was a little embarrassed about a lot of my songs, but I just, I couldn't help but write them. And as I grew in my late teen years, I began wanting to write music for church. You see, I was a worship leader. I had been leading worship. I've led worship for now, uh, like a little over 20 years. And as I was um, leading worship in church, I wanted to use some of my own songs, but As I began trying to write, I felt it was really difficult. You see, when I was writing my own music for me, it was just how I felt in the moment and then how could I poetically say that. But as I began thinking about like how do I write songs for church it just got really difficult to go okay well it's, is it just about how I'm feeling or do I need to express things other people might be feeling too and then okay this is maybe what's going on inside me but is it theologically accurate and can I cross-reference it and you know maybe I should just sing scripture but sometimes it doesn't flow And so, how much of my own stuff should I put in there it was just these mounting filters that really kept me um, from feeling able to write a worship song and soon Uh, Not only had I found it was difficult because of all these filters to write my own worship songs, I began finding it difficult uh, to worship in church. Now, right belief is important, and that's what I was striving for, but I was caught up in a kind of legalism that was not just suffocating my songwriting, It was suffocating my ability to enter into worship. As we'd sing worship songs in church, I would evaluate them through the same lens I was evaluating my own music. And instead of worshiping, I was just critiquing and criticizing. Then one day in my own personal quiet time, I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew. I get to the end and I read this interesting quote from Jesus on the cross. He says, um, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And at the end of that verse, there was a little footnote. And in my study Bible, I went down to the footnote and it said that Jesus was quoting directly from Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of David, which is a song. And I was shocked because Jesus wasn't just making a theological statement about the nature of the cross. He wasn't just quoting a Bible verse. In that moment of darkness and weakness on the cross, Jesus was singing a song a song that David wrote as he quoted these song lyrics. And as a worship leader, I mean, this is what I was after, right? Like I wanted to write and sing songs that pleased God's heart and made him want to sing along. But to say my God has forsaken me, that felt scandalous. I mean, God forsaking and abandoning someone, that didn't seem theologically right. And I knew in that moment, If I had been alive at the time of David and he had showed me this song before it was in the Bible, I would have criticized it for its theological inaccuracy. I'd have said, David, God would never abandon us. You can't write that. You can't have our church singing that. It's just simply not true. What is it going to teach people about God? It may be how you feel, but it's just simply not good doctrine, David. Now, just to emphasize again, good doctrine is important. Belief is important and it's something we aim for, but in the name of right belief, I had put a limit on how emotionally vulnerable I was allowed to be and how emotionally vulnerable others were allowed to be with God. And I realized in that moment, reading that Bible verse, that I had a huge issue. I had an issue with being emotionally honest. And I thought it was godly to be emotionally honest about positive emotions and I thought it was ungodly and inappropriate to be honest like this about negative emotions. In Psalm 22, I saw for the first time the snapshot of the kind of worship song Jesus would sing, and it was not the kind of worship song I would write. And I knew that, and I knew I was wrong, and I knew I needed to change. David's worship was the opposite of mine. He was so free to vulnerably express his emotions before God, even in the midst of his darkest and hardest feelings, telling God, I feel like you've abandoned me in this darkness. And I knew that I would never write a song like that, but God looked at David's song and he called that worship. Grief, loss, trauma, difficulty, pain, abandonment, these are just inevitable parts of the human experience. All of us face these things and when we do, we have to make a choice about how we're going to deal with them. Some of us try to bottle it up and we hide and say things like the past is in the past or that was so long ago. or We bury our emotions and say things like time heals all wounds, right? But here's the deal. When we do not grieve well, whatever loss or death initiated the grief keeps killing things in our life, it kills our ability to feel, It kills our relationships. It kills our faith. It keeps, the the death continues when we don't grieve well. And when we repress and bottle it up, despite our best intentions, it becomes toxic and it seeps out to those around us in ways we never intended or expected. Some of us bottle it up, some of us get overwhelmed and then we isolate. We run away. We try to deal with it on our own, but inevitably we can't deal with it on our own because we were made for community. You and I did not come into this world alone and we cannot live in this world alone. We were made to bear the burdens of other people and have other people bear our burdens with us. Isolate and destroy is one of Satan's favorite tactics and he frequently uses it when it comes to grief and loss some of us go to the other extreme instead of doing our work by running away or you know trying to heal by isolating we just hope that by talking to anyone who will listen to our problems and hoping that everyone will listen to our problems that somehow telling everyone about it will make it go away will do the work for us that somehow if we can just tell everybody how hurting we are that somehow, someway, maybe they'll be able to fix us. And we end up waiting on our friends, our family, our spouse, our church to facilitate our healing instead of owning our own lives and and facilitating the healing in partnership with other people but not abdicating it. And what happens is this creates a loop in our lives where we have chronic problems that keep getting different names but all circle the same route. Others of us, we don't jump into talking, we jump into doing, you know? We stay busy, we keep our schedules full, we have a never-ending string of plans and projects. This is where I go, for sure. After all, I mean, what good is it sitting around and crying about it, right? That's not productive, might as well do something helpful, right? But it doesn't change anything, it doesn't actually absolve our grief at all. We tell ourselves that we're being productive and just pushing through, but really what we're doing is we're running away from our own inner pain, which inevitably means we're running away from our own souls, and we wake up one day not knowing who we are or who God is anymore. Psalm 22 is an alternative to all these ways of meeting our grief and pain. Psalm 22, in this Psalm, David brings his grief and pain honestly before God. Instead of repressing it, isolating, uh, just talking about it, or jumping into doing, he wrestles with God in the midst of his grief, and in so doing, he writes the kind of song that God wants to sing. And so our question today is, how does Psalm 22 teach us to turn grief into worship? How does Psalm 22 teach us to turn grief into worship? Now before we jump into Psalm 22 specifically, I want to begin with some things about the book of Psalms as a whole, just that you may or may not know, because it's important the Bible is not a book, okay? The Bible is a library of books. Psalms is one book in this library of 66 books. The Psalms were written over spans of hundreds of years. Contributing authors were Moses, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah, King David, and many authors are unknown. The Book of Psalms is a collection of 150 Hebrew poems, and its name in Hebrew means Book of Praises. Now, Hebrew poetry is very different than English poetry. One of the things we can get caught up in when reading the Psalms is we go, maybe it rhymed in its own language, you know what I mean? But it doesn't, okay? Hebrew poetry is not organized by rhymes, it's not uh, uh, organized by associating rhyming words, it's organized by associating similar thoughts. The Ravel Bible Dictionary says this about Hebrew poetry. It says, Hebrew poetry is often difficult to distinguish from Hebrew prose. The Hebrew language itself is almost poetic in its nature, being rich in imagery, alliteration, and other devices. Hebrew poetry does not rely on any obvious meter or rhyme. Rhythm was originally conveyed in the accent or stress placed on various syllables. The rhythm in Hebrew poetry is also found in patterns or arrangements of thoughts and concepts, rather than in rhyme schemes. So that's what, something we need to kind of understand about the book as a whole. It's about how the thoughts relate to each other, not about how the sound of the words relate to each other. Furthermore, the book of Psalms is organized to be a microcosm of the Bible. You'll notice it begins with chapters one and two, and those reflecting kind of mirror Genesis one and two. And then starting in chapter three, the book of Psalms is split into five different books each book kind of mirroring the five books of the Pentateuch or the Torah, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Book one was compiled during the time of David, most likely. Book two seems to have been compiled during the reign of Solomon. Books three and four were compiled while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And then book five was compiled when the Israelites came back from Babylon in the time of Ezra. The final compilation of the book of Psalms in its final form as we have it today was compiled post-exile and in exile to remind these Israelites who were foreigners in a foreign land of who they were and who God was in the midst of all of lives up and downs as they were waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. All of the Psalms circle around the author's relationship with God and the people around them showing us how deeply relational human beings are at their core. Interestingly The Psalms are not very concerned at all with meeting God someday in an afterlife, but are super concerned with meeting Him right here, right now, in the full and present human experience. Unlike other biblical books, the Psalms are not moral pushes for us to change. They are a cry of the soul towards God from the deepest parts of the human experience. Instead of hiding the most gross and vulnerable parts of ourselves from God, The psalms bear all of life to God in all its realness. So with some of those things in mind, we're going to look specifically now at Psalm 22. We know that this psalm was written by King David, and we don't know the specific circumstances that caused him to write this psalm, but we do know that this is a psalm of grief, and there are many seasons in David's life where this psalm would have made sense to be inspired by. During David's life, he uh, endured relentless persecution at the hands of his father-in-law, King Saul. He was constantly at war from the time he was a teenager. He was exiled from his home as King Saul, his father-in-law, chased him to kill him. King Saul gave David's wife away to another man without David's permission, and David came home to realizing his wife was no longer his. He lived in an enemy nation for almost a decade, pretending to hate God's people so that he could survive he endured the death of his four children and tried to navigate the grievous complexity of his oldest son, Amnon, raping one of his daughters, Tamar. There are many more difficult circumstances in David's life, and we are not quite sure which one of them this psalm was inspired by. But in whichever of those dark places it was, David decided to honestly pour out his heart and prayer by writing a song to be sung in church, in temple services. So for the remainder of our time, here's what I want to do. I want to go through Psalm 22, stanza by stanza, and I want to look at really three things. I want to look at how the psalm is organized poetically, how how the thoughts relate to each other. I want to look at what the psalm teaches us about what it means to worshipfully grieve, and I want to look at how the psalm looks ahead to Jesus. So we're going to start in the first stanza. It says, Psalm 22 for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. Quick note on that. This is really interesting. Some psalms are written for personal reflection, not to be sung as corporate worship songs. The fact that there's musical notes for a director of music means that David intended this song to be sung by his spiritual community, essentially inviting everyone into his grief. we will come back to that in a moment. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. David begins this psalm with an honest outpouring of grief before God, coming to God in full vulnerability. He lays out exactly how he's feeling. He tells God, I feel like you've abandoned me in this. Now, did God ever actually abandoned david on a theological level no i don't think so not at all but this is how david felt and he felt free to express that to the lord and even though this may not have been theologically true for david it was for jesus and i'll come back to that at the end of the sermon but this first stanza in terms of the poetic organization of thought this first stanza is an expression of grief and now we're going to move on to our second stanza but before we do this shows us something about worshipful grievers Worshipful grievers are emotionally honest. Is it theologically true that God abandoned David? No. But that did feel emotionally true. And David didn't try to edit that. He just brought that before the Lord and said, this is how I'm feeling, Lord. This is what's going on inside of me. And God looks at that and calls that worship. Now on to the second stanza. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here we begin to see the poetic structure of the psalm take shape. The first section was an expression of grief. Now this second section is expressing praise. And I kind of see this praise as a rebuttal to David's own inner world. You know, he's on this roller coaster of grief that. I don't know about you but i know all too well like god i'm hurting but i know you're good but life sucks but i know you're good you know it's just like going the back and the forth the back and the forth. life is hard but i know it can get better but it's not right now god what do i do i know that part of the grief process and this praise um, that he's talking about like lord oh you saved us my ancestors It's not random, like he knows, he's thinking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Deborah, Samson. He knows the stories of God's faithfulness, that God is mighty to save, even though he's not experiencing that right now. And so David begins with grief and then goes, but I know you are mighty to save me. And then he goes back into grief in stanza three. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insult, insult, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So now we're back to the dissonance of the current reality, back to the grieving and to the despair. Not only is this an honest expression of grief, but in this verse, we begin to see the Holy Spirit speaking through David a thousand years before Jesus to prophesy about Jesus on the cross. Now, in Matthew 27, Uh, We're not going to read it now, but it shows exactly this scene that David is describing about himself, but it shows that it's true of the cross as well. Two interesting other observations about the way this kind of foreshadows the cross. In verse 6, he says, I'm a worm and not a man. That word used for worm is tola. Okay, very interesting because tola refers to a specific type of worm. It was a worm that lived in tree trunks and this worm was farmed to be crushed because its blood was used to create a red dye. And so the name for this worm was the crimson worm because it would be found in trees and then crushed crimson red in order to create something beautiful. And David, when he's talking about, I feel like a tola, a crimson worm, and not a man, we see looking ahead to Jesus that Jesus is crushed on the tree of the cross for our sakes to run crimson red so that he might make something beautiful too. Really cool, really amazing. Verse 7, like I said, describes the crucifixion scene in Matthew 27. I encourage you to look that up. We're not going to read it today. So he goes, grief, praise, grief. And then he continues the pattern and the fourth stanza of the poem, Is a stanza of praise as David rides the emotional roller coaster. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. What's interesting about this stanza of praise in comparison to the last one, the last one he said, listen you've helped my ancestors. I've heard the stories. I know you can do this. But now he's not talking about something God did for his ancestors. He says, listen, Lord, you gave me life. You met me in my mother's womb and you saw that I was born. And life itself is a gift. So even though life is hard right now, I'm just recognizing and praising you for the fact that to live is a gift even though I'm suffering. So we have this poetic pattern, grief, praise, grief, praise. And David ends the first section of the Psalm with a plea. He says, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there's no one to help. This poetic pattern of grief, praise and plea is a pattern I have seen in my own life. Lord, I hate this. This loss is breaking me, but I know you're good. I know you can save me. Please God, do something. Help me, Lord. Help me. David does not wait to come to God until this emotional roller coaster he's on has stabilized or he's quote unquote in a better place. David shows up to the Lord riding the roller coaster and even structures the song after the ups and downs that I know all too well in the grieving process. In the very structure of the psalm, we see that worshipful grievers show up before they've stabilized. He's not getting it all together and then coming forth. He's like, Lord, this is where I'm at right now as I'm in the midst of the grief and praise. So David doesn't wait till he's off the roller coaster He cries out while he's on it. And that's not just a neat observation. That is an invitation to worship. The second section of the psalm begins with another round of grieving. David says, many bulls of Bashan surround me, or many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So this is a poetic description of David's hardships he's feeling. Bashan was a region in Canaan known for big animals, known for big people. It's kind of like, it's, it's a more literal version of the Texas trope. You know, everything's bigger in Texas, right? Everything's bigger in Bashan. And so he's saying, not only is this an ox, which I don't know if you've ever been around a cow or an ox. They're huge, okay? So he's not only saying, this is a massive animal that could crush me, but it's, a, it's a, a big animal. It's a Texas cow, right? It's like big on big on big. It's overwhelming. OK, so he's saying that this uh, thing he's, he's faced with is overwhelming. And secondly, in verse 14, David says, I'm poured out like water. My heart is turned to wax. My mouth is drier than dust. He's essentially saying everything is inside out and backwards, right? Instead of feeling solid, I feel liquid. Instead of uh, my heart beating, it feels like it's melting. Instead of my mouth being wet, it's dry. Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. Everything is inside out and wrong. And then he continues, this is a new pattern now. So we went grief, praise, grief, praise, plea. After the plea, David doubles down on the grief. He goes grief, grief again. And he continues with this. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Now, up to this point, we can see the metaphors in the Psalms as descriptions of David's real lived experience. But at this point, it seems to depart from him on a personal level. But it's very prophetically descriptive of the crucifixion with Jesus on the cross. Here we see the Holy Spirit speaking through David's openness, his honesty, his intimacy, and his songwriting to not only look forward to, but to create a historical moment to validate that Jesus is who he said he is. We see this, the words of this play out exactly in, Psalm, in Matthew 27. Again, I'd encourage you to go read that chapter. So the second half of the Psalm begins with these two stanzas of grief, and then David makes his second plea, ending on what he said, or expanding on what he said before the first plea. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. A fun thing just to note in terms of Hebrew poetry. So in his grief, he said, the oxen is um, encircling me, roaring lions, and the dogs. Right? He went oxen, lions, dogs. And now in his plea, he's walking backwards through those same things, right? That's part of the parallelism that we see that makes Hebrew poetry poetic. So in in, uh, his complaint, he went, ox, lions, dogs. And now in his plea, he says, save me from the dogs, the lions, and the ox, right? Just an interesting thing. After this second plea, David does something unexpected. We have grief, praise, grief, praise, plea. And then we have double grief, plea. And the way he ends the psalm, is not what I would have expected from a song of grief. He ends this psalm of lament with four stanzas of praise, even though his circumstances haven't changed. Why would that be? Why would a song about grief and loss end in twice as much praise as there was grief before it? Well, I was processing this with Rick Gutterson a little bit this week. And Rick is a member here at Life Church Livonia. He's a grief counselor. And he reminded me, Rick said, the purpose of grieving is to experience healing. Rick Utterson, Alex Rayhill. I mean, it's Rick's quote, but I'm quoting Rick, so it's my quote. Instead of staying stuck in his pain and losses, David deliberately places his burdens on God. David's not running from the pain. David is pouring his pain out. And at, like think of a cup of water. As he pours out his pain, it creates space in him for something new to be poured in. And when we avoid pouring out or acknowledging our pain, we end up destroying ourselves because we will numb the pain with some kind of substance or some kind of avoidance and we'll run. And this may decrease our immediate feelings of grief and sadness. I mean, I see people do this all the time. I think this is the number one use of marijuana in our culture is to numb difficult feelings and to run away from them instead of dealing with them. And you know, it does decrease our feelings of immediate pain, but what else it does is it decreases our capacity for every other emotion as well. Love, joy, peace, delight, et cetera. Marijuana is a popular uh, drug for this. Alcohol is a super popular drug for this. And I would even say our phones and TVs are a popular drug for this. Just to run away from what's inside of us. But that doesn't solve it. It only makes it toxic because buried emotions don't die. They get buried alive. David decides not to do that. David decides to pour his grief out, which creates space in him. And the purpose of grieving is healing. Rick Utterson, Alex Rahill. So while David is mourning, David is healing. Rick also told me about this fascinating project done by a woman named uh, Rosalind Fisher. So Rosalind specializes in taking photos of things under a microscope. She did one with bees, she did one with bones, and in one particular difficult season in her life, she found herself crying and a tear fell on her arm and she thought to herself, I wonder what my tears look like under a microscope. And that question set her on a five-year journey of documenting different kinds of tears from different circumstances under her microscope. And this is what she found. She said "These are that these pictures are not just pictures of tears, These are pictures of emotional terrain from an aerial point of view. And so these are what those pictures look like. This is what a tear from endings and change looks like. This is what a tear from cutting onions looks like. This is what a tear from laughing looks like. And this is what a tear from grief looks like. Notice how different they all look. And you wanna know why they look so different? Is because the uh, different the different emotions that we have while we make these tears create different chemical makeups for the tears and one of the things rick told me is that when you cry tears of grief in the tears your body releases toxins that phys that that, um, biologically facilitate your emotional healing your tears are literally emptying you of the toxins that come with grief and the process of crying biologically facilitates the process of emotional healing. The pattern that you see in the tears of grief are those toxins being expelled from the body. Another interesting thing, an observation by Dr. Henry Henry Cloud, who is a renowned uh, psychiatrist and psychologist, He he talks about the healing effect of crying and then he makes an interesting observation about tear ducts. He says, have you ever wondered why tear ducts are in your eyes? Why aren't they in your armpits? I mean, if they were there, you could have some anti-tear deodorant, but no one would see them, smell them, or even know you were in pain. But they are in your eyes for that very reason. Your pain, your tears, should be seen by someone who is looking right into your soul as you go through that pain. Your pain needs to be seen and loved in order to be completely healed. If crying was simply a detox mechanic, God would not have made our tears inescapably visible. In Psalm 22, David David is literally and figuratively crying out to God, the God who sees him. And as he grieves and laments the circumstances that inspired this Psalm, David begins to heal. Not only does David cry out to God, but David cries out with his spiritual community. Which is what this psalm is, right? This psalm is a worship song to be sung in the temple services, or what we would call church. And it is meant to invite other people into David's experience that they might grieve with him, and in so doing, that they would express their own grief. By this example, we see that worshipful grievers cry to God with others. David ends this psalm of grief with four stanzas of praise. He began expressing individual grief, and he ends in this corporate praise. He says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Psalm 22 begins with this individual grief and ends in this corporate praise. Through this vulnerable cry of the soul to God, his grief changed to praise and moves David from not being able to see beyond his own pain to being able to see far beyond his lifetime to the crucifixion of Jesus into the redemption of all things the last thing I want us to see here is that in this psalm of grief there is praise but the praise always comes after the grief in the name of praise David doesn't stifle his mourning like I was trying to do as I was writing songs as a teenager. It's okay for the praise to come second. I think worshipful grievers let the praise come second. They can honestly both express the grief and the praise. But just because we trust God, just because we praise God, just because we know he's good, doesn't mean we should stifle or be dishonest about the difficult things inside of us. Even though the psalm ends with praise, there's no rushing to get there. David is called a man after God's own heart and held up by God as a man whose spiritual life is to be imitated. And all the worships of all the worship songs Jesus could have sung, he sings this one. He sings a song about grief, about abandonment, a song about God being far and not near, a song about being persecuted and trampled and overpowered. And that song looks to God first strength at the end, as it ends in praise. God holds this psalm up to say, that kind of honesty, that kind of contending, that kind of openness, that kind of crying out, that is worship, and that's a worship that makes me want to sing along. Today, I want to invite you into that kind of expression. How might God be inviting you in your own life to grieve more honestly, more truly, more deeply, more vulnerably through the psalm of your own life? Uh, On our digital bulletin, and if you're in person at the back, there's some handouts. Uh, There's a document there to help you write your own psalm of lament. And I wish I had time to go through all the elements of that, but I just simply don't. But I want you to take some time this week and to pick three to six elements from that. There's six that we see in the book of Psalms and there's more on the document. But I want you to spend some time writing your own psalm of lament if you're going through something difficult right now. Like David. Come to God before you've stabilized. Be honest about what's really going on inside of you. Cry out to God with other people. And let the praise come, but it's okay if it comes second. As we end today, I want to come back to the first verse of Psalm 22, where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That opening line was not theologically true for David, but it's totally theologically true for Jesus as he quoted it on the cross. You see, our sin separates us from God. That's simply what it does. And Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, and he had never been separated from his Father. He is God in the flesh. And throughout all of eternity, Jesus had never experienced separation from his Father until the moment where he said this on the cross, where he took on the sins of the whole world. And for the first time in all of eternity, he was separate or forsaken from his Father because he took on my sin and he took on your sin, and he took on the sin of all of humanity. Out of his love for us, he wanted to make it possible that no human being would ever be separated from God again. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, we can enter into a kind of intimacy that Jesus has with his Father. Because Jesus was made far from God and forsaken on the cross, you and I can be welcomed into the arms of the Father and made right and whole and new. On the third day after quoting this psalm, Jesus rose from the dead to give you and I life and life to the full, both in this life and in eternal life after death. If you're not a follower of Jesus or you've fallen away, I want you to know that life is available for you today. And that life is coming from, is an invitation from a God who would rather take on the sins of the whole world and the punishment for that upon himself than live in an eternity that you are in with him. God wants to make you whole. He wants to make you new. He wants to meet you right where you're at. And he wants to lead you into life and life to the full. And if you feel a pressure on your heart, if you feel a conviction in your gut, if you feel that maybe a little sense of fear because, you know, change is going to be required, that's the Holy Spirit. And I want to invite you right now to pray with me and to open your heart up to God, to let him become the Lord of your life. And as we see with David, to learn how to become intimate with him, to know him, to love him, and to be loved by him as we experience life and life to the full. Would you pray with me now? Oh, Lord Jesus, I am challenged by David's example. And Lord, I come to you honestly today with my hurt, with my fear, with my sin. Lord, I come with the parts of me that doubt you, the parts of me that are afraid, the parts of me that want to blame, that want to hide, that want to run away. And Lord, on the cross, I just see that you would rather take on the sins of the whole world, than be separated from me. And so, Lord, I don't know exactly what to do. And I don't know all the things you're going to ask of me, but I want that love. I know I need that love, that I was made for it. Somewhere in my soul, I know I was made for it. Jesus, I pray that you would transform my life. I receive you and your Holy Spirit now. I ask you to come and make your home inside of me. And Lord, I ask that you would make me new, that you would show me how to live, Lord, that you would lead me into a flourishing life. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please let us know on a connection card, either on your chair in person or through our digital bulletin. Thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to be back in person next week for Psalm 23 as we continue our series on the Psalms.